Eating disorders are notoriously difficult to treat. If you suspect an eating disorder, what do you do? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vicki Burkus, psychiatrist and eating disorder specialist in Tucson, Arizona. Welcome. Thanks, Leslie. I'm glad to be here. So, Vicki, how do, how do I start a conversation with someone that I suspect may have an eating disorder? What I do is with an adolescent that comes in. I'll ask them, what made you decide to come in today? And then I listen for what they're not telling me. So if they say, well, my mom wanted me to come in, and I start, well, what do you think she's concerned about? And usually you'll get an, uh, an answer like, oh, she's just overreacting because I'm, cause, and then you sort of, sort of lead it to, is she concerned because you're not eating? Or is she concerned about certain behaviors that you're doing? If they're still not willing to, to say anything, you can sort of go into the Columbo routine sort of help me understand. If you've noticed a change in their weight, you might start with, help me understand. I thought last time we were together, um, you know, you, you seem to have lost some weight since then. Tell me about that. Or if you suspect that they have a bulimic type of activity going on, if they're using laxatives, if they're purging, either through vomiting or exercise, to say to them, you know, you look tired. Are you eating okay? Is there anything different that you might be doing to add to your fatigue? This is going to be like pulling teeth because patients are extremely shameful and filled with guilt around their behaviors. So a lot of times it's use your own gut instinct. How well do you know this patient? How well do you know the parent? How well do you know a spouse or their kids? You know, because we're dealing with with patients of all ages. I have it a little bit easier because most of the time patients are referred to me because someone has identified their eating disorder. But if we're talking about someone who's in family practice or internal medicine, they may present with something totally unrelated to their eating disorder. So that Colombo approach will help me understand something looked different on your lab or something looks different to me on physical exam and see what, what they respond with. If, if you're not having any luck that way, then, you know, I just get real direct with them. I understand that your mom's concerned because you haven't been eating much lately. Tell me about it. Or help me understand what a typical day looks like around your food. Now, if a patient is really severe, and it's obvious to everyone that they have an eating disorder, and you think you have to hospitalize a patient, where do you start? The problem in today's society is cost. And insurance companies are not likely to cover the cost of what we call a 30-day treatment program. But as a physician, your main goal is to get that patient stable. So if that means they have to go into your local hospital because, gee, you may not have an eating disorder facility or program nearby, then to put them into a hospital setting, what I recommend sometimes is find out if there's a geriatrics ward at your local hospital. Because if you think about it, a geriatrics nurse, has a lot of experience in working with little people that don't want to eat. Wow, no kidding. I never thought of that. Yeah. And so if you look at a med surge nurse who's swamped, they're not going to have time to work with someone to get down a quarter cup of insure mm-hmm. if someone's anorexic. And they're not going to have time to sit by and monitor someone after they've had a certain amount of calories to make sure they don't purge or they're not up walking or doing exercises around their bed trying mm-hmm. to burn off calories. It's one of the big challenges for every physician is what do I do for my patient? Because 
this patient needs a team approach. And I think that, in the back of my mind, is something that I'm exquisitely aware of. If I have a patient that I know needs that level of care, then I will, number one, find out, is there a therapist that they're working with? Because there is an organization called the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals that has a referral line online that you can look up your state and find out who is certified as an eating disorder specialist in your area. And the first thing to do is create a team approach with a nutritionist, a therapist, you the physician, and if there's a psychiatrist that specializes in eating disorders, that makes your job a lot easier as the referring physician. So if there's only a locally a local hospital or a clinic or whatever, again, you need to stabilize the patient, and that may mean they may need fluids. They may need to replace potassium or sodium. They may need to be on a watch just to keep them from compulsively exercising or vomiting or having access to laxatives. So a lot of it might be engaging a sitter. If there's no one else trained in the area, to have a 24-hour sitter just like you do for someone that's suicidal. Now, if you do have the luxury of having someone that can afford to pay for a 30-day treatment stay, which is the minimum usually at most treatment centers, then again, going either through something like an Internet-based IDEP website to give you access. There's a website called edreferral.com that lists all the treatment centers, and all of them have websites and admit people. A physician may say, you know what, I don't have time to do this. I'm seeing patients every 10, 15 minutes. What they might do is contact an interventionist in the area. And again, go to the website to find out who might do an intervention with the patient and the family to do all the legwork for you because it can be overwhelming very quickly. So somewhat similar to trying to get somebody in the hospital for substance abuse. It is. It is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you know that they need care immediately or they're just going to continue in their behaviors. Now, can they be hospitalized against their will? The only That's real hard. You know, there is a fourth criteria on putting someone into that situation. You can petition someone as gravely disabled or a danger to self. And if they're absolutely refusing food, what that will do is allow, and I'll tell my patient, you know, this is the last thing I want to do is take away your rights as a patient. And I'll say to them, you know, I want to keep you in control. But you need to hear that if you can't take over that control, I will. And that's when I may explain to the family that a petition just allows someone to be held 72 hours against their will in order to have two psychiatrists do a psychiatric evaluation. Then they can refer or suggest treatment options to a judge, but it's actually the judge that decides whether the patient will be court-ordered to treatment or not. And a lot of times what I'll tell the patient is, you know what, we can do this where you're in control, but if you wind up unconscious, you're going to wake up with a tube down you being tube-fed, and you're going to have absolutely no say at that moment in what's going to happen. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vicki Burkus. We are discussing establishing a treatment plan for a patient that may have an eating disorder. So, Vicki, of course, the involuntary commitment... <clears throat> The involuntary commitment procedures vary from state to state, so um, someone in another area may have a slightly different procedure, but certainly your, their local psychiatrist should be able to help them with the process. Right, or even a local ER social worker or ER nurse probably is aware of this. 
But, you know, that's, that, Leslie, that's a last result because we want to engage the patient, even though it's very difficult because the control issue is so big and the shame and the guilt and the fear. And, you know, the way I express the fear level experienced by these patients around food and around their body is the only thing I can relate to is once I was in San Diego and I was staying on the 18th floor of one of the hotels there and I was awakened like in pitch black, middle of the night with my bed moving. And my first thought was, I'm not on a cruise ship here. And I couldn't even keep my footing when I jumped out of bed. And that level of fear, thinking, oh my God, if this hotel is moving this much, it's going to go down. And when I opened the door and hit the stairwell with 500 other people trying to get out of this hotel, you could feel the fear. And imagine what that would be like for a patient 24-7, to live in that kind of fear around food or around gaining weight or around not being accepted or not having control. So is it possible, let's say primary care physician is listening out there, um, is it possible for them just to treat this patient by themselves? No. I wouldn't treat a patient by myself. And I've had the, (laughs) the training and the experience. This disorder, and it's not about the patient. If they're an anorectic, they're perfectionists, they're very highly motivated. Think of the level of control that it would take to allow yourself to only have, say, half a bagel and a half a cup of yogurt a day to eat. For any of us that have started a diet on a Monday, what happens by Wednesday? <laughs> by Monday afternoon, are you kidding? <laughs> I know. It's like, forget it. I'll do it next week, or I have this party, or I can't, or, ooh, that looks too good. So if you look at the level of control they maintain, it's somewhat amazing to me. And so I'm not going to put myself in that position where I'm going to be working harder than the patient. Mm-hmm. You need a team approach. Anybody does. And it's because of the disease, not because of the person. So who should be on the team? That's the nutritionist who specializes in eating disorders. That's a therapist who specializes in eating disorders, a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner who, again, has the specialized training. And then, obviously, the internist or general practitioner or the OBGYN who's referring the patient in. Well, I have to tell you, these patients drive me a little nuts. (laughs) They drive (laughs) all of us a little nuts. And that's your gut response. Your gut response, no pun intended, huh? Right, no pun intended. But to say, where do I start with this patient? Yeah. So how do you manage? How do you deal with that? You have the team approach. So you're not, you know, trying to juggle all these balls in the air by yourself. You engage the family. And this is something about eating disorders is that it doesn't just affect the patient. It affects the entire family. I just met with grandparents who were horrified that their 16-year-old granddaughter was anorexic. They had no, they said, we don't know anything about this. Where do we start? How much do we intervene? How much do we stay away? What do do we do? They were just overwhelmed. But aren't family members often part of the problem? It may be. It may be. They may have someone else in the family, whether it's a mom or a sister, that are also engaging in this sort of unsaid competition to be the best anorexic or the best bulimic or other people that are compulsively overeating in the family. And food becomes the way that they communicate. Mm-hmm. So, so what causes the eating disorders to begin with? That's a loaded question. Because <laughs> Sorry. It, you know, it, it's multifactorial. There's just no one thing. I sort of draw a pie chart for family members and, and patients to say, well, let's look at all of the factors involved. And we know that there is a genetic predisposition to developing an eating disorder. We don't have the definite genes identified, but we're working on it. And so... For someone, what I call going through an age-of-life task, 
as a physician, you may be doing an exam prior to someone going off to college. That's a stage of life event. And for some women or guys, they go with the flow. They know it's going to be a big adjustment, but they handle it. There are other people that get there and say, oh, my goodness, how do all these girls or guys go to the bookstore, know what books to buy, and find their classrooms, and manage to meet new people? For a select population, that's completely overwhelming. And they develop an eating disorder to sort of feel some sort of control in their life. Or they maybe get married, and they're thinking, oh, my God, now I have in-laws to please and a new husband, and I'm supposed to have my job, and, and it gets overwhelming. We want to thank our guest, Dr. Vicki Burkus. We've been discussing the management of eating disorders. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.